Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. headlines this morning before we jump in with Mark Caleb Smith on all things Supreme Court nominations, vacancy, brouhaha, all kinds of shenanigans. Uh, let me uh, let me lead off with this. Uh, I think a point of prayer concern for for those of us across the country as Louisville, Kentucky's Metro Police Department is now operating under a state of emergency. Federal buildings in that city have been boarded up in anticipation of the announcement of the grand jury's recommendation uh, by the state attorney in the case of the police shooting of Breonna Taylor. For those of you who live in cities where there have been um, police protests, protests related to the police, um, I think in every in every place we should anticipate that those um, who have taken to the streets related to other cases um, are going to take to the streets in relationship to this case should should the grand jury not find um, in, you know, in in what I think in this particular case seems to be clear. And so um, I just I just recognize that the grand jury has access to to facts and evidence that the rest of us never will. And so I just think we just need to be soberly prepared. Um, the Louisville Metro Police Department obviously uh, anticipating the people of that city taking to the streets um, as they are now operating under a state of emergency. We don't know what day this week um, this grand ju- jury recommendation might be uh, forthcoming, but obviously the city of Louisville is on high alert couple of headlines out of China that I want to make you aware of this morning. Again, this is, you know, I recognize that a lot of this is it falls under the category of pray the news. We feel as if there's not much that we can do in um, in some of these situations. But praying is not doing nothing. Praying is doing something. Um, it's reminding God that we are mindful of what is happening in the world. It's it is making the desires of our hearts known to the one who is in a position to bear out uh, temporal influence in places and spaces in ways that maybe we feel we cannot. China is uh, is systemically uprooting entire rural villages of ethnic people and moving them in mass into newly constructed, consolidated, government-designed towns. So these are people who used to live dispersed across the the landscape, farming independently. Um, educating their own children, raising their own children with ethnic dialects, uh, many of them not speaking Mandarin as their primary language. Um, And they used to live fairly free. Well, they um, are now being moved out of these rural villages, uh, and they are being moved into these consolidated government-designed towns, Uh, And they are being moved into jobs in government-controlled production farms and orchards. Their children 
whom they once educated in their own communities, in their own native tongues, um, are now all together in Mandarin-only schools. I just, I lift this up because um, you and I both know that this is actually how um, socialist governments, communist governments, communist states uh, eliminate any individuality and move people into, um, I mean, if, you, if you've ever visited, if you ever had the opportunity to visit um, the USSR just after its breakdown, you, you know what we're, where we're headed um, in terms of these people who once lived fairly independently, um, who are now going to be forced to live um, in ways that are completely government controlled. All right. And then one more headline out of China. China has sentenced a 69-year-old member of the communist elite. He had been an outspoken critic of the party's suppression of the press. His name is Ren Zhishong. Uh, He disappeared in April after it was alleged that he was the one who had penned a widely circulated piece which was critical of the communist regime. Um, According to the Chinese government, he has now confessed to a number of financial crimes. Uh, He's been sentenced to 18 years in prison it's the entire thing is considered a, a warning to other Chinese elites that any departure from the party line in China will not be tolerated. Um, so here is a billionaire who no longer has access to the empire that he built. Um, he is no longer free. Let's be praying um, on the China front today. Mark Caleb Smith is up next. We're going to talk about the vacancy on the Supreme Court. We'll be right back. Mark Caleb Smith is joining me now from Cedarville University to bring us all entirely up to speed on the vacancy on the Supreme Court. Mark, there you go. That's the challenge set before you, my friend. (laughs) Well, and I have uh, a whole two days to do it, right? (laughs) So we started this conversation yesterday with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale. Um, So we won't till the same soil we tilled with him. There's a lot to talk about. And so um, I'm hoping that you will cover sort of the nomination, where we stand already in the nomination process. We know that the president has committed to nominate a woman um, that we anticipate he's going to announce that nomination this week. Who do you who do you view as sort of in the running? Well, everybody seems to be leaning toward Amy Coney Barrett as the if leading I candidate. had a vote. If I had a vote, which, of course, I do not because I am not yet a me- – oh, I am not a member of the U.S. <laughs> Senate. Um, but I like her. Yeah, I do too. Uh, she's a f- former Notre Dame law professor, a Notre Dame uh, law degree holder. She's Catholic, staunchly Roman Catholic. Uh, she's 48 years old. She's been on the circuit court now for a few years, and she has some experience. She's already been through a confirmation fight relatively recently um, she has seven children. I think there are a lot of things I think that a lot of people see in her and say, you know, this looks like a strong candidate. So I think right now I'd be surprised if it isn't her. Let's start there at least. Well, and apparently the president has already met with her at the White House. So I think that's, you know, that would certainly be one sign. He is also uh, apparently going to meet later this week when he is in Miami with Barbara Lagoa. What do we know about her? Right. Yeah, Barbara Lagoa, uh, Florida Supreme Court Justice, 
uh, who's recently named the 11th Circuit Court in 2019, um, Columbia Law School grad. She's 52 years old, so still young for for a potential Supreme Court justice. Uh, interestingly with her, I think, is she was confirmed by the Senate in an 80 to 15 vote, which means she actually got quite a bit of broad support from both parties, uh, which may be appealing to the president to some extent. Also, her being from Florida may be appealing to the president because of the potential political impact a choice from Florida might have, especially within the Hispanic community. So I think that's an interesting choice for politics. She's certainly qualified as a judge as well. And so I think she'd be a very defensible pick. All right. Both of those candidates are, I mean, young, but there is um, there's a there's a right. third person. I think the only evangelical Christian maybe who is uh, on the list of potential. Well, the five the five top women that I guess people are kind of talking about. Um, I guess she's 38. Yeah. Allison Rushing is 38 years old. Can you imagine? Well, only because I'm only because I'm the age of Barbara Lagoa. Do I think 38 sounds like super young? Super. It's super young. I mean, it really is young. Uh, she could potentially sit in the court for four or five decades if we look at recent uh, experiences on the court. And so a Duke Law School grad, uh, she clerked for Justice Thomas. She clerked previously for Neil Gorsuch. Um, she's only been on the court, though, the circuit court. She's on the Fourth Circuit in North Carolina um, for a year. And that's a little mm. bit risky, I think. You have someone with l- relatively light experience, um, not a real sure or strong judicial temperament necessarily that we know of yet. Um, and she went, She had a really difficult party line vote. So I think she'd be divisive. That doesn't mean she'd be the, a wrong pick. I think she'd be a tougher sell and it might take a longer uh, nomination and confirmation process with her. So um, I remember Amy Coney Barrett's Senate confirmation um, I remember it being grueling. I remember they're targeting her um, because of her religious commitments. Um, has yep. anybody else endured that kind of scrutiny at the national level among these candidates? Uh, when you think of just sort of based on her religion and the de- the divisiveness of the recent confirmation process, then no. Barrett really had the worst of it. Uh, you'll probably remember um, uh Let's see. It was uh, I can't remember the California senator who said the dogma lives loudly in you is how mm-hmm. she put it when she was um, when she was interviewing uh, Amy Coney Barrett. And it, it was it was shocking to some extent, honestly, if I think about it in historical terms for a sitting senator uh, to question the religiosity so openly uh, of a Supreme Court nominee. And this and this is not a sort of a, a weird religion. Right. This is Catholicism. Right. This is a historic right. religion. Um, This is a well-known commodity in religious circles. It's the religion of the candidate on the Democratic side of the presidential nomination. It is. It is. I mean, Biden is a Catholic. He carries a rosary. No question. And that's one way, you know, you wonder whether if she was nominated right now, how they would handle that, especially considering that uh, religious voters appear to be a little bit um, open for business to some extent from what we see in recent polling. Uh, President Trump has had a little bit of slippage among Catholic and evangelical supporters. And so you wonder whether Democrats would even make it as much of an issue right now as they did uh, when it wasn't a, a campaign season. Oh, I don't think they'd be able to resist. All right. We got to take a very brief break. Uh, when we come back, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University and I are going to continue the conversation 
Um, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to continue talking about the nomination process, but there's so much more to talk about um, when we when we begin considering what what might happen as the president of the United States moves in the direction of nominating someone for the seat now vacated by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We are talking about the current vacancy on the Supreme Court of the United States following the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, I will say, Mark, I was... um, I guess I'm a little bit sad that a person's life and legacy got about 20 seconds of attention um, before we all started talking about how, you know, I mean, even replacing her is not even the right language, but um, how, you know, her her the the seat left vacant by her death um, would be filled. And so I guess I just want to pause and remind us all that this um, this is a woman who was. very convicted about her point of view. She was also a very honest broker. I don't think anybody ever wondered where um, where she stood, and she engaged um, people on across the ideological spectrum. I think she was a very fair arbiter um, in terms of her presentation of her convictional views. Yeah, no question. And I think you have to admire the uh, obstacles that she overcame in her professional career. I mean, she graduated first from her class at Columbia Law and couldn't find a position. And that's almost unthinkable. Um, and it's exclusively because of the fact she was a woman at that point and it was just unheard of. And the obstacles she and overcame, she was a mom. Do what she did. I think, it's remarkable. I think the, other, the other issue at that point in time was that she was a mom and people were like, you know, yeah. you're a mom. You got to go be a mom, which I'm not arguing that people shouldn't go be a mom after they have a baby. Right. But I am saying that for uh, for a woman who, uh, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there should have been a position for her when she graduated from law school. No question. No question. She's a remarkable, remarkable woman, uh, close friend with Antonin Scalia has been talked quite a bit about over the last few days. Someone who's able to overcome her differences with people and still build really strong friendships. And I really admire that about her. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We are hearing um, from uh, I'm kind of hearing from folks across the across the spectrum, you know, anticipating that like Kamala Harris is going to have to leave the campaign trail to return to her duties on the Judiciary Committee um, and the Senate confirmation hearings. Um, Talk about how you think this entire um, I don't even know what to call it. What's happening right now related to the vacancy on the Supreme Court? How does this affect the presidential campaign? Yeah, I think the number one thing that it does is it keeps us from talking about the virus and COVID-19 mm. altogether. And I think that's very good for President Trump. Um, he's certainly been criticized over his handling of the virus. And this has changed the discussion completely. And I think it's put it in, in his favor in the sense that this is a strong issue for him. You know, This is one of the few issues the president can uh, credibly claim that really brings his coalition of voters together. Uh, unanimously and firm and strong support for the president. And so, you know, similar to in 2016, when Justice Scalia died, uh, Trump came forward, said, here's my list of nominees. You know, now after Ginsburg's death, he's come forward, he's going to make a nomination. I think it's going to it's going to weld his coalition back together. And so I think it's very, very good for the president, just in terms of short term politics. Um, Democrats are obviously upset. Uh, They not only admired Ginsburg, but this has the potential to shift the court and so I expect them to really pull out all the stops here 
uh, like they did with Justice Kavanaugh, frankly. I expect it to get contentious and heated, potentially ugly, um, and maybe even we'll continue to hear things like if you nominate and confirm someone, uh, then we're going to pack the court, uh, we're going to abolish the Electoral College, we're going to do a variety of things uh, as sort of payback for this. Um, this has been a long escalation process that goes all the way back probably to Robert Bork in the 1980s, where the Republicans and Democrats have just continued to escalate over how they've treated Supreme Court nominees, and we're watching the fruits of it right now. The um, some of those threats, uh, violence in the streets, impeachment of the right. president, um, yep. pack the court. Yep. Maybe just maybe just touch on that last one, um, because that sounds like a, a, a never ending horrific potential. Like you do that to me this time around. And, um, oh, buddy, you just wait until I have the opportunity to do that to you. Like, you know, we could have a, a court of 25 in two cycles. It's What it shows you is that the two parties are fixated on the court. And the court is, to some extent, the center of our politics right now, which is completely what it's not designed to be. Uh, but even putting that aside, the Democrats are arguing that they should be able to add members of the court as they see fit to sort of overcome for Trump's appointments so they would add at least three, maybe four, maybe six members of the court and, and bring it up to maybe 15 people um, and just so they can have it be larger, so they can make those appointments and so they can exercise an influence on the court uh, in upcoming cases. And as you said, if Republicans gain control of the Senate again in the future and the House and the presidency, then they would be tempted to do the same thing. And we would just see this sort of unending escalation of uh, court packing plans uh, and it's hard to see that it really ends. And so you've had people like David French and Jonah Goldberg and some others who've tried to float compromises out there and say, you know, maybe we should hold off on this nomination in order to get a promise from the Democrats that they won't pack the court. You know, I respect the desire to compromise, but, you know, that's not going to sell in this political environment. It's just not going to happen. And so uh, this has the potential to really grow out of control. And I don't, you know, as you said, it's you're fearful about it. I'm fearful about it as well. I just don't know where this ends. This tit for tat approach between the Republicans, Democrats, and the Senate. Yeah, I, I guess I'm holding out hope that um, Senate Democrats actually do know better. I mean, I think they're they're saber rattling. You know, I, I think impeachment would be a foolish, foolish tool for right. them to, yep. Uh, yep. to try to wield. I think court packing. I think the threat of it. Um, people see through it. Well, uh, people who are concerned about our constitutional form of government see through it. Those who are bent on tearing it all down. Yep. See, I see. I think they don't see any reason why you wouldn't basically deconstruct the Supreme Court by, you know, by putting thirteen or ultimately twenty-five people on it. Like I don't. It's because you and I respect the system of governance, right. because we respect the Constitution, that we think those are foolish weapons to consider wielding. But I think there are a lot of people who are not reformation-minded in terms of let's take the things that are, um, that are foundationally good and let's build new structures upon them that work better for more people. There, instead, we just have this burn it all down, tear it all down revolutionary spirit in America right now that does not seem at all concerned with what um, what what then would even possibly rise out of those ashes. 
No, and Carmen, that really fits with kind of the progressive mindset we've seen for the last hundred years, if we're honest about it. Um, it's really been an effort to get away from the Constitution, away from our founding institutions. And this is just part of that same argument that's happening in real time. So in that sense, it, it kind of fits perfectly with that ideology. But for it to be so open and so brazen, I think that that's uh, pretty new. All right. Um, is there a way that you could work up something that instead of it being an ideology, it's an idiotology? <laughs> could you work on that? I need somebody to work on that because I, I need I need to be able to call upon the idiotology of the day. Could you? Could it sounds you, like I, a I, sounds like a bestseller. All right, there you go. All right, all right. Mark Caleb Smith's next bestseller is going to be idiotology. <laughs> We're going to be on the lookout for it. Hey, thanks, man, so much. We'll hey, circle back care. around. All right, bye bye. We'll be right back. All right. The U.S. Department of Justice has labeled three American cities, New York, Seattle and Portland, as anarchist jurisdictions. All right. It's the next step in curbing a federal funding for cities whose elected officials are unwilling to keep protests within what you and I would uh, recognize as peaceful bounds. Now, you're going to hear a lot of back and forth about this. What is an anarchist jurisdiction? What does that even mean? I do think it gives us the opportunity to talk about law and lawlessness. It gives us an opportunity to talk about cities in this country where people are behaving badly. And I have already alerted you that the city of Louisville, at least the police force there, um, has declared a state of emergency in anticipation of, uh, of people taking to the streets. All right. So I thought it would be interesting for us to talk with somebody who lives in one of these cities. So Kevin Palau, who is a Portlandier. Is that the right term, Paul? Portlander? Portlandier? Portlander. Some say Portlandiers, yes. There you go. He's up next. Kevin Palau. You recognize his name. Uh, Luis Palau is his dad. Kevin runs City Gospel Movements. And he's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so I was uh, I was thinking that maybe I would ask you about um, text acronyms and internet acronyms, but I don't think I have enough time to have that conversation. So I C Y M I T Y. No, too short. Okay, in case you missed it, we had fall share last week, and I just wanted to say thank you. So I C Y M I. In case you missed it, T Y. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, This is also uh, the reality of a listener-supported ministry is that we say, you know what? If you did miss it, you didn't really miss it because you can give any time, any day, any hour of the day or night online at MyFaithRadio.com or by texting the word GIVE to 877-933-2484. By the way, that text line is open all the time. Great way to communicate with us while we are on air. So maybe you just want to go ahead and save that into your phone as Mornings with Carmen or as Faith Radio, because Susie Larson and Bill Arnold both respond to that text line as well during their programs. The number is 877-933-2484. I-C-Y-M-I-T-Y. We'll be right back. Whose side are you on? I mean, when it comes to family dynamics, are you for your kids or against them? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. So, Mom and Dad, you've established rules. You've agreed upon consequences and communicated the expectations to your kids. But what have you done recently to communicate that you're all on the same team? Sometimes it's good to give your child something you've withheld for a long time. It'll show her that you are for her, not against her. 
surprise your child, and she might just surprise you with her response. We're all working toward the same goal, to end up with a well-rounded, independent young adult. Mark Gregson is devoted to helping parents of struggling teens. For more helpful parenting resources, go to ParentingTodaysTeens.org, ParentingTodaysTeens.org, or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Kevin Palau. He is president and CEO of the Luis Palau Association. Kevin and I have had an opportunity to connect and intersect at some um, national events related to prayer and renewal and city movements across the country. So it's just really exciting to have Kevin on with us. Kevin, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much, Carmen. Great to talk to you again. Well, I really, I mean, I asked Paul, my producer, to like help me think through who's in Portland who we could just call and say, what's it like to be in Portland right now? Because those of us who are reading and hearing headlines out of Portland, you know, it seems pretty dystopic. So thank you Mm. for agreeing to just sort of give us an on-the-ground report. What's it like to be in Portland? Well, you know, it's, it's, I guess I say to to, to wonderful friends that that reach out, uh, on the one hand, it's not quite as bad as what the media might portray. I'm not blaming the media. It's just that you know, the media is looking for, for quick sound bites. And the reality here is that there's been a wonderful, deep relationship for more than a dozen years among hundreds of churches, recognizing that this is a kind of almost an anti-Bible Belt place. And so therefore, you know, it's a place that's very quirky and progressive and, and, and likes to protest things. So the, the level of anger and protest is shocking in some ways. It's discouraging in some ways. But I would say that um, the, the beauty of the unity among many, many churches is that our focus tends to be, rather than on self-protection and kind of winning some sort of battle, it tends to be more on how do we reflect the genuine love that Jesus has for the amazing people of Portland who care deeply about many things. How do we reflect that to people who, in, in many cases, think they know what a Christian is about, and they unfortunately tend to have negative stereotypes about followers of Jesus. So we have a long-term vision of seeking the shalom. What does it look like to seek the peace and prosperity of Portland? To paraphrase um, Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the shalom of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. So in a sense, Whatever comes and goes, we try to have this sense of peace and confidence in the Lord, listening to the Holy Spirit, and, and, and saying, how do we love our city well? How do we find common ground where we can and, um, and be a voice of, of peace and, and, and comfort to people when a lot of people are very confused? So, Kevin, can you maybe just walk us into that kind of conversation. Walk us, you know, walk out of, uh, from behind a closed door and into a city street or into a conversation in a city that is really hot right now, Portland or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's, I think it's crossing that threshold of fear that is the hardest part for people. Yes, I think, I think you're exactly right. And even, 
even um, uh, taking a step back from the the current moment, which is hotter and brighter, mm. <laughs> if you mm. want to put it that way, than than, than other places. Um, you know, we've lived here in Portland uh, my basically my entire life. My dad's an evangelist from Argentina, and he and mom met 60 years ago uh, at Bible school here. And so mom's a native Oregonian. So we've we've always been here, but it was this, you know, a number of years ago that we said, what could we do that would actually open up meaningful gospel conversations? And I, I guess I would say I'm starting with that as a premise. And that may or may not be the premise that listeners would have, but I would argue that as followers of Jesus, it should always be at least one of the aims that we have um, is to get into these kinds of meaningful gospel conversations. So in our case, it was it started fairly simply. At the time, the mayor was a, a friend of mine, now a friend, Sam Adams, and at the time he was the first openly gay mayor of a top 25 city. So he had a lot of misgivings about Christians, especially evangelical Christians. And we had questions about whether, you know, how he would respond to us reaching out. But the reason we reached out, when I say we, about 100 churches got together to say, you know what, we're not making much progress in living out and sharing the good news in Portland because there's so many misunderstandings. It's not like we're starting on with common ground. We're starting in this 10-foot hole of misunderstanding that's been dug where no one's talking to each other because of that fear both ways. So we felt like it's on us as Jesus followers to take the first step despite that fear. So we went to see the mayor, and um, it's funny. We started off with, with just a very, I guess I would say, a naive uh, but sincere humility of saying, you know what, we know that we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. And that wasn't an intent, but we tried to put ourselves into the mindset of the people we were trying to reach with the good news. Rather than standing kind of across the chasm with our arms folded and saying, we're right, you're wrong, you know, we're willing to talk if you're willing to, you know, come our way. We said, I think Jesus took the, took the other posture and he didn't start with that kind of a posture. So we, we, we went to see the mayor and said, hey, you know what, we know that as Jesus followers, we've tended to become known mostly for being against things. This, this, this part of scripture, you know, this seeking the peace and prosperity, the shalom of the city, what could we do to build some common ground? So we did something pretty simple. We said, you know what, if we could mobilize thousands of Jesus followers to love and serve Portland, what sorts of things could we do? So again, we weren't pretending that we were in agreement on many areas where followers of Jesus would not be in agreement with um, city leaders in a place like Portland. Uh, but we said, you know what, if we start on common ground issues, so we said, you know, wh how could we serve? So we ended up now for a dozen years, the churches of Portland have been partnering with hundreds of public schools. We have been um, taking on and serving the foster care system and working with the refugee community. And so by finding things that are, that are, that are clearly biblical, loving our neighbor as ourself, um, we felt that that would break down some of these stereotypes. And indeed, it has built a much greater sense of trust in the personal, in the personal level. I mean, some of us are going to pray with Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, in a couple of days, just quietly. It's not a public event. It's just us reaching out saying, wow, this, our mayor's under a lot of pressure and tension. And like anybody else, he probably is feeling it. Maybe let's go and just quietly listen and, and, and pray. So we're not, 
we're not abandoning scriptural truth. We're not pretending we're in agreement when we're not. We're not abandoning proclamation of the good news. We're just recognizing that if we can build relationship of trust around common good issues, that can lead to the right kind of gospel conversations where, where people know, even though we disagree, at the heart of it, we have love for people we disagree with, which, of course, is what Jesus modeled. I'm talking with Kevin Palau. You can find what we're talking about today at citygospelmovements.org. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I hear you Continuing my conversation now with Kevin Palau. You can find what we're talking about at citygospelmovements.org. Kevin, there's going to be at least some people listening right now who are going to say to themselves, wow, he's been at this a long time. He's been doing it the right way. He sounds like not only a reasonable person, but, you know, he sounds very compassionate and very tempered in his approach. And yet Portland is on fire. Yeah, and so yeah. I, th- I think that for people who look at all that you have already invested, all of the ministries who are engaged in the kind of conversation that you're talking about seeking to have, they're then going to look at Portland and say, well, what difference has it made? Yeah. Help us help us <laughs> exactly. sort of see the, the no easy answer part of this conversation. Yes. And, and that's I'm really glad you raised that, Carmen, because with I think as followers of Jesus, we have to have that mentality that, you know, this, this is paraphrasing Charles Dickens <laughs> in The Tale of Two Cities, but whether these are the best of times or the worst of times, this is the only time we've got. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the church throughout history has been through far worse. This is a Sunday school picnic compared to what believers in some parts of the world are going through today. Um, and certainly what the church has gone through um, historically, when it comes to to persecution to the point of death, so and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to make light or or pretend that things are better than they are, but I think that that we can trust and leave the results to the Lord, um, if we are walking in the Holy Spirit, and doing what we can. So you know, be, and, and the other thing is, there's always more going on under the surface and behind the scenes than would appear when there are a relatively small group of people that are extremely angry. I mean, when you look at the number of people that are in the streets, it's, it's such a small number, generally speaking. You're talking a few hundred people that are genuinely angry. They have their reasons. Others that are angry at the, at the violence that they're perpetrating. But for the average Portlander, there's still then followers of Jesus wanting to love and serve and have gospel conversations that lead to life, lead to life change. So some of the things that, that, are, that you wouldn't see in the news, when you, look, when you look at the foster care system, seven years ago, we began this conversation to say, what would it look like for followers of Jesus to step into this very challenging environment? And it began with, just like I did with our mayor, a sit-down conversation. We love you. How can we serve? We're not experts in solving every problem. So what began with, well, let's do makeovers of the nine Department of Human Services offices that are across the Portland metro area to just build trust and and come alongside those that are serving in the foster care system that are under attack all the time uh, because it's a very challenging environment. We began by building trust there. It, It led to producing thousands of welcome kits for kids that are coming into the system. And ultimately, the the state of Oregon said, we need hundreds and hundreds more foster families. So the church began raising up foster families. Well, 
fast forward five years of this process, a couple of years ago, at the state level, the state of Oregon came to this new organization that had been formed called Every Child, because as the churches were responding to foster care, we felt, okay, we need to have a, a, you know, a, a way to manage this. The impact without a penny of government funding of churches engaging, Jesus followers engaging in foster care was so dramatic, hundreds of new foster families raised up. Um, the makeovers of these uh, DHS offices, foster parents' nights out taking place monthly to serve those that are already foster parents, that the state came and said, you've done all this without a penny of government funding, let's work together. And now, today, the only way you can become a foster parent in the state of Oregon is to come through every child, which was this church-created portal managed by followers of Jesus. So that's the kind of thing you may not see in the news. In fact, you probably won't. But it shows that slowly and steadily behind the scenes, as Jesus followers actively engage in practical love and care. You know, sometimes the easy thing is to get on social media and blast away out of genuine anger and genuine frustration. And I think, I think you know, that, that, I, that the approach that we have found to be much more useful and helpful is rather than prejudging and attacking people we disagree with, not that we are pretending we're in agreement and not that there isn't a place to be clear and bold. And we're in a political season where, where this is an important election, so I'm not downplaying that, but I'm talking now more at the local level, the personal neighborhood level, your own city and town. You know, you are there, Lord willing, for the long haul. The Jesus followers in the local church aren't going anywhere. Even in ch challenging places, uh, tough urban areas, San Francisco Bay Area, New York City, Portland, Seattle, places that, where there is a relatively small number of Jesus followers, we still are called to be the salt, be salt and light, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I would, I would even say that our ability to, in, to influence and, and make change in some of those cultural hotspot areas are greater if we have built trust behind the scenes. You can then at least have a conversation. But no, I'm not, I'm not here to say, you know, you do these kind of things and all of a sudden everything's going to change. I think some of those things we have to leave in God's hands. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. All right, um, Kevin, I have a website um, and a ministry for you to check out. It's a little bit more rural than what you guys are doing at, at City Movements, but I think that you will, you'll love knowing about it. It's called Everyone's Wilson. So there's an S in there, Everyone's Wilson. Okay. And it's a countywide effort in this one rural county in Tennessee. It's a network of gospel-centered churches and individuals working together for the good of um, everyone in Wilson County. I just think you're going to love it. So I just wanted to yeah, highlight that you. to you because sometimes it's nice to know, right? There's there's people doing it that you may not be connected with. They may not know about you. You may not know about them, but God's up to something. And I just like to make sure that, you know, people know about each other. Well, you know, and this is if people um, have any interest or, or are intrigued by this idea of a sustainable, long-term, united movements, movement of the church in your in your city, your suburb, your rural area, your county, um, that is the purpose of this citygospelmovements.org website that you referenced, Carmen, because it has a mapping function as one, as one of many things it does, where you can look to see, like, is there something already going on that I might not be aware of in my area? There, there are more than 600 examples 
of 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 Portland and um and so and give me that I'm going to write that website down. Give me that everyone's, website. Everyone's Wilson. So there's an S in the middle. Everyone's, everyone's yes, yes. Wilson dot org. Wilson .org. and that's the county, is it? Wilson yeah, County. Yeah, it's a county. Mm-hmm. Wilson Got County. It. It's just um, it's just east of the city of Nashville. That's great. So, well, see, and it doesn't surprise me that 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 the Holy Spirit is raising up these kind of movements because it's simply John seventeen unity. We are one. That's right. The Holy Spirit indwells His people. Nothing can stop the Church of Jesus Christ. What we call this gospel movement. You know, the gates of hell. We're already told won't prevail against it. So even when things seem dark, when we feel like we're losing. We can have that confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes when things are darkest, we, we can be that light. And the way that we respond, our posture is so important because when people see us not responding in anger and frustration and lashing out, but calmly, even when we do disagree seriously, I think that speaks loudly. Absolutely. All right. That's Kevin Palau. You guys can check out what we've been talking about today at City Gospel Movements. That's also with an S, citygospelmovements.org. All kinds of great stuff there to inspire and equip you. A map of the country so you can see what's going on in terms of connected churches in your own community and how you can get engaged. Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. Really appreciate it. Hey, we'll be right back. Okay, in um, in a in a reversal of something that we talked about yesterday, so I just wanted to clarify this. The CDC has now said that guidance on airborne virus transmission of COVID-19 was published in error, that it was a draft, that it should have uh, not been published. So anyway, I just thought I would lift that up since Dr. Zach Jenkins and I did talk about that yesterday here on the show. All right, we got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. I have got Justin Gibney. I've also got David French. Today is the day that his book, Divided We Fall, is available, and we've got copies to give away. So stay tuned to the next hour of Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.